morning. My name is Ada Rag, and I'm really excited to be here with you this morning to share some of the things that God has put on my heart from this, uh, from this passage. Um, as I said, I normally attend the 9.30 service, and I, I know I haven't had the privilege to, to meet uh, and, and, and speak to probably most of you, uh, but hopefully by the end of this uh, service, you, you will get to know me a bit better, and, and I look forward to you know, catching up with some of you after the service. I don't know about you, but I have really, really enjoyed going through the book of Philippians. It's just a, such a source of, of great comfort and, and, and challenge. Uh, and in my small group on Wednesday, we concluded our study uh, on Philippians, and we decided to do something slightly different. We, we had finished the material, so we decided to spend some time uh, reading through the whole book out loud in one sitting. And it was just a remarkable experience, and I would encourage you to try it in your small group. And one of the things, one of the many things that struck us was the sense of realism in this letter. You know, Philippians is often viewed, and you've heard it, it's the epistle of joy uh, as the theme of joy and a constant reminder to rejoice are so prevalent. But as we were reading it, we stepped into Paul's shoes and you can't overlook the tears, the conflicts, the hardship, the imprisonment, serious illness, uncertainty, rivalry, and anxiety. Yet, what makes it truly remarkable is Paul's perspective on all of this. I'll just remind you, to live is Christ, to die is gain, and everything is rubbish compared to knowing Christ and experiencing the power of the resurrection. And as we look at this passage this morning, um, I just want you to try to place it in this big context. It only makes sense when we understand and we know Paul's heart. Uh, Philippians 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 9, can be found on page 1108 in your church Bibles. Um, And it might be helpful for you to just have it open um, as we go through the passage. So it's 1108 and 1181. So the passage can be split into three different sections. The first section is verse 2 and 5, deals with conflict. The second section, verses 6 and 7, tackles the issue of worry and anxiety. And the third section, verses 8 to 9, the need to watch out and watch over what we think and our thought patterns. So, as we look at the first section, Paul pleads for unity. I plead with Eudokia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. 
He revisits the theme of unity, and this is not the only place in the book of Philippians that conflict is addressed. And I think that far too often, we, we tend to shy away from those difficult conversations, be it in our families, or work, or church community. Paul advocates for unity, but he doesn't just brush things under the carpet or denies the existence of differences of opinion or even earlier in an earlier chapter of mixed motives. And as I mentioned earlier, his, his perspective is so focused on Christ that he is able to engage with this less than desirable situation Two influential women, presuming in leadership or in a position of influence, are in bitter disagreement. And this is affecting and infecting the church community. And yet, his answer is rather simple. I don't know if you know the story of the little boy who was always giving the right answer in Sunday school. Um, you know, and his, his leader praises him, obviously very impressed by the, the child's knowledge. And the little boy turns around and says, well, no matter what the question is, the answer is always Jesus. And indeed, Paul encourages us to look at that the matter and say, actually, the answer is Jesus. In these two very practical and simple verses, you know, he, he suggests that before we are tempted to take sides, before we empathize with one party, remember that big picture. Remember your call to make Christ known. Remember the partnership you signed up for. And make this your starting point in the quest to a resolution. I don't want to spend too much time um, on this, but in a nutshell, please note the following. Paul is not surprised by the existence of conflict. He addresses it. And he offers a framework for conflict resolution. That's the partnership in the gospel. And then he also involves the wider and wiser church community. As in verse 3 he states, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. And as we move towards the end of the letter, Paul's instructions are, are like headings to a larger dis discussion on different themes. So in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. I, all, I will say it again. Rejoice. And this is just an invitation to choose joy as a deliberate and conscious act focused on our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us followed in verse 5 by, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. A reminder of what we have in God. The kingdom of God is here. The Lord is near. And we 
can extend the love and the grace we have received to others. And this will look in practice as gentleness, kindness to our peers. As we move to the second section, uh, it's probably one of the most challenging verses in the Bible. Verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In the next few minutes, we will be unpacking this and looking at what, looking at what this means, and in, in both in theory and in practice. Uh, and I think it is a challenging verse, yet is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And I have to say, I don't know about you, and if you, ha- you, know, you can challenge me later, but I have not yet come across anyone who says that worry or feeling anxious is not a problem for them at all. Anxiety is a real problem in our society. You know, the statistics in themselves are a real cause of concern. Some surveys identify that one in six adults have had experienced some form of neurotic health problems in the previous week. Whilst other surveys suggest that one in four people will struggle with depression at some point in in their lives. And what I find as a parent even more concerning is the rise in anxiety amongst children. And and I just want to mention something here, um, that we need to make, we need to understand uh, the importance of having the right attitude and the right response when we come across people who go beyond this low level of anxiety into mental health problems. You know, there are no quick fixes as far as mental health is concerned. Uh, and we need to be aware of our own limitations and, and the way we offer advice and support to people struggling with mental health. I just want to say that God is full of compassion and grace and we need to follow that example in the way we relate to one another and the way we understand and offer love to those struggling with mental health issues. I, you know, I would suggest that the book of Job is a very good point of reference if we want to look for some practical advice of what to say and not say. Anyway, returning to our passage... Pressure and stress seem to be our daily companions. We we breathe it in every day. And sometimes it's our own, and sometimes it's external. Uh, On Tuesday morning, by the time I got to work, which was before uh, 9 o'clock, I had spent 50 minutes in my car, having traveled three and a half miles. Whilst I recognized that was a character-building experience, it it was most definitely not an enjoyable one, especially in this heat. And I know that sitting in traffic is a sort of a silly example, but 
this week I was, I was reflecting on the complexity of our lives. You know, paradoxically, we control so much. We can turn, we can ask Alexa to turn light and on off. We don't have to get off the sofa. You know, we can place a food order with just one click. And yet, we often feel that we have so little control, especially over the things and the people who matter the most. And feeling that we have no control over a situation, that we are at the mercy of circumstances uh, and other people, often leads to feeling anxious or worrying about the situation. As I mentioned earlier, these two verses are challenging, but they're also full of practical and realistic advice. Paul does not say, as a Christian, you will be spared of feelings of worry and anxiety. In fact, the phrase, do not worry, is repeated rather a lot in the Bible. Paul Paul also doesn't say, do not worry about anything. If you would have left it at that, we would all feel dejected and misunderstood. When, we, when you have health problems and you're waiting results, you will feel concerned. When your child is unsettled at school and other children are not very kind to him or her, you can't escape worry. You know, when your job is at risk and the financial security of your family is at stake, you will feel anxious. You know, Paul in the book of Philippians gets all of that. He recognizes that as we get involved with life and circumstances, sometimes we will feel anxiety. And Paul's very practical suggestion is to take whatever you are going through back to God in prayer. You know, you see, it's again, it's a change, it's a shift of perspective. In other words, if, when we focus on the situation, naturally, worry appears. But as we step outside it and involve God, something beyond rational understanding occurs. Um, I think the message translation of these two verses makes it really quite clear. And I'll just read it to you. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying... Pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. And before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of our lives. I want to say very clearly that the Bible does not promise that the situation will change. We are, however, reassured of God's presence with us every second of our lives. As we turn to prayer 
and we practice entering into God's presence, we relinquish control. We stop trying to do things in our own strength and wisdom and lean into God, and the result is peace. The antidote to anxiety and internal turmoil is peace. But the kind of peace that Paul talks about is not achieved through human effort. Often the peace we can achieve through human efforts is rather fragile and vulnerable and under threat from a a number of exterior factors. Because I think that human peace is based on our ability to control or to know what will happen next. Um, I don't know how many England football fans have peace about uh, the match on Wednesday. But the peace that we have on offer here transcends our thinking. It's the kind of peace that calms the storm, that has power to affect both our intellect. It says you will guard your mind and our emotions and your heart in Christ Jesus. It is the result of a surrendered heart. And and I just, I've often struggled with, you know, understanding and explaining this. So, you know, what I think happens is, as we take our difficulties to God in prayer, we recognize our dependence on God. And our spirit connects with the Holy Spirit. And peace from God flows into us. In March 2016, Richard was um, appointed associate vicar here at uh, HTC, and we started to plan our move to Claygate. It was a rather stressful and uh, incredibly complicated time for us for many reasons. And one of the things that um, worried me immensely um, was the situation with school places for our girls. We had absolutely no say or control whatsoever. We weren't even able to visit all the potential schools, and we just had to fill in the application, pray, and leave it to God. We got our fourth choice... And I remember feeling incredibly disappointed as I read the letter. I had prayed and prayed and prayed, and I had convinced myself the outcome would be different. But we had no choice, so we had to accept those places and took it back to prayer. Surrendered prayer. And surprise, surprise, we both felt an immense sense of peace and God leading us and going ahead of us. And I think it worked rather well. And finally, as we move to the last section of our passage, Paul returns again to that big picture. It's just a beautiful description of a, and a reminder of the transformation Christ brings into our lives. We have received and witnessed the immeasurable uh, admirable, excellent, splendid grace of God, and our rational thinking should be engaged with such things. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, he says in verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of such things. From that rational thought, then Paul moves to practice. Whatever you have learned and received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I don't know if there is anything currently in your life that is threatening your peace. Or you feel like Paul are facing real battles, unfair treatment, maybe at work. Or if you are in an amazing place of joy. But whatever the circumstances, I hope that you can take encouragement from this passage. Whether you are facing conflict or involved in conflict or feeling anxious, let's take all of it to God in prayer. Amen.